I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. After I gave my talk last month, I got the impression from someone that uh, they believed that my talk, in my talk rather, I might have said something that the Buddha thought was an obstacle to the goal was not a genuine obstacle. And uh, I don't know if the person actually meant that, but having that thrown out there seemed pretty serious if I had actually done that. And so after receiving that information, I thought like, well, maybe I'll have to give my, uh, myself a listen to find out. Now, if any of you have done any kind of public speaking in any way, you might already know uh, how deeply uncomfortable it might be to have to listen to your own voice again. So it probably isn't much of a surprise that typically when I give a talk, I tend to not revisit it. I do my best and then I put it out there into the world and that's about it. But given what this person had said, or at least implied, I thought, okay, I, I better listen. So the timing of this was actually quite strange because it was close to Thanksgiving. In fact, it was the day before Thanksgiving. And so I was doing some last minute shopping and picking up some catered stuff that you know, my wife and I were gonna have for our very small and wonderful Thanksgiving that we typically enjoy together. So it was as I was on the way to Whole Foods to pick up the cranberry sauce and the stuffing and everything else, listening to my own voice come out of the speakers of the stereo in my car. And so I did listen and, uh, and I thought, okay, well, I don't really hear what this person is saying, but I, I do know what I was trying to do in the talk, which was to not shame people for where they are in the path. Uh, for those of you who didn't get a chance to hear my talk last month, it did re revolve around Buddhists who are practicing the path, who are in relationships, who have partners. And the tendency for some people, especially when they're studying on their own, to do a lot of reading of the suttas, to read a lot about disenchantment and dispassion, and start to really beat themselves up for being lay people, and beat themselves up for having relationships, for being married, and so on. And so it wasn't uh, my intention to give any kind of talk where I'm saying, hey, but, you know, sensual desire and gratifying the senses isn't an obstacle to arahantship. If anything, I was saying it's not an obstacle to be a lay person, you know. But in any case, uh, you know, perhaps my, my tone had been a, a bit flippant, I don't know. But I thought that I would spend today uh, perhaps talking about uh, desire in general, what it means uh, to abandon sensual desire and sensuality, and to look at the sutta that this one per person uh, brought to my attention is like, hey, you know, you're, you're saying this stuff, and in this sutta, the Buddha says that sexuality and, and sexual intercourse is an obstacle, right? Or, you know, left it at that. So I'm gonna look at that today. 
But I will say something else about this idea of, of shame as we carry it in the West. This semester, as I was doing my studies, I was doing a lot of research to write on the idea of personhood or the person in, Buddha, in Buddhism. Because it's one of those critical terms that Buddhists tend to latch onto and others tend to latch onto because a lot of Western philosophy has big ideas about what a person is, what a person's rights are, what a person is defined by, and so on. And one of the things that a lot of people, especially in popular Buddhism, once they take away from it is that there is this no-self idea. And so I found, found myself as a scholar in this interesting position because on the one hand I'm not really agreeing with Western philosophy in terms of talking about self and person, but also not really agreeing with the, the popular misconception on, in regard to no self and applying that to the, the, you know, the, the five aggregates and so on. So I was kind of going back and forth with these two different views. But one scholar I came across was someone who was very interested in uh, you know, political philosophy uh, and social justice and a lot of things. And this person had come to somewhat of a negative view of Buddhism and thought of Buddhism as perhaps not really being a force for good in the world and so on. And looking at this popular view and looking at like, well, I mean, if you can't define a self, then how do you hold anyone morally responsible? How do you avoid moral nihilism and so on? And I thought it was interesting that this person was concerned about Buddhist morality, not in the sense of a Buddhist being able to decide or determine, to use their discernment to know what is right and wrong, but the person was a bit preoccupied with, well, how do you know who to blame? And I thought that was kind of odd, but that's a very Western idea of person and justice and fairness. How do you punish? How do you blame? How do you hold people responsible? And how is that ontologically and metaphysically involved. How is that connected? That's the Western perspective. For, the, for Buddhists, and looking at the Buddha and looking at the early canon, you see a very different view. Like, there's this not-self strategy that's provided. There's this idea that we should be skillful and know what's right and wrong. And there's also this idea that we are the owners of our actions related to our actions aired, you know, as, as the whole refrain goes. And how are all these related? The Western philosopher wants to know, how are all these related? And the Buddhist view is like, well, they're related when they need to be, and when they don't need to be, they're not, you know, which is, for, us, for some Western-minded people, not very satisfying. But that's the way it goes, you know, some, some knowledge and some truths are instrumental, you know. Uh, that's how uh, the, the Buddha views it. In fact, there's another scholar, uh, David Kulupana, who wrote a whole book on ethics in early Buddhism, if anyone has any interest. And he points out the fact that, you know, it was, it was the, the, the Brahmanical tradition that was very, very interested in defining people in terms of what they are and what their duties corresponded to in regard to what they were, right? The caste system and so on. And in this book, he points out how, well, the Buddha and a lot of people from like the, the ascetic shamanic tradition viewed it more of a more of a, 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 not instrumental, I'm losing the word right now, there's a, a, a philosophical word for kind of when you need it and when you don't, it, it serves a particular purpose when it doesn't. I don't know why the word is leaving my mind right now. It's because maybe I've been spending so many years emptying my brain of Western philosophy. But it wasn't based in how we define people because the Buddha wasn't concerned with defining people by caste. 
He wasn't concerned with defining people by birth. He was concerned with defining people by their actions. And so that's to the extent we, that we define ourselves as in Buddhism. And what he also did was not go around spending a lot of his time uh, bashing people over the head uh, with you know, being wrong-headed and, and criticizing and blaming them a lot of the time. In terms of the Buddha's instructions, he tended to instruct, but he also intend, you know, uh, would inspire, rouse, and encourage. And even in those passages where it seems like he's being a bit harsh with someone, he's doing it within that context. And so it was with that context in mind that I'm looking at the lay person and the lay life, especially for those who read passages like the one I'm going to discuss today and start to feel really heavy and, and burdened and, and lesser because they think that they might be the kind of person that the Buddha is talking about. So the, the sutta in question. This is Majjhima Nikaya 22. It's known as the water snake simile or just the, sn the snake simile. And it begins with a monk who is completely wrong-headed. He has the completely the wrong views that have come to his mind. His name is, is Aritta. And Aritta is sitting there and meditating. And we know this account from the commentaries. So with commentaries, it's a bit mm, hit or miss. Sometimes we can really trust the commentaries. Sometimes we, we might need to be a little careful in analyzing it. But the sutta itself doesn't really say what thoughts sprung to his mind, but the commentaries do. And the commentaries say that Aditya is sitting there meditating, and he's thinking about how there are lay people who practice the path, who develop the path. And, you know, but they're also lay people, and they're still gratifying the senses, living in the world of the senses, and they're getting to enjoy this thing and that thing as a part of their lay life. And in, in spite of all of that, they're able to become stream winners, stream enters. They're able to become once returners and non-returners. And it's like, wow, in the midst of their lay life, they're able to do that while still enjoying the senses. Amazing, right? And he starts thinking about monks as well. It's like, well, monks are practicing and, you know, they're practicing well, but they have these simple monk pleasures. You know, they get to eat the food out of their bowl. They might have a, a comfy blanket to sit on when they're in the forest meditating and, you know, the, 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 the fabric of their robes might have been donated by someone to give them some nice fabric. And they're just like, you know, they get to enjoy those pleasures as well. So why can't I, as a monk, based off of those things that we know about the path, enjoy the pleasures of sleeping with a woman? Now, the problem with that is that that is um, one of the things that if a, a monk does, he's considered defeated. There are four things, and they correspond pretty closely to the five precepts as well. You know, if a monk takes a life, if a, a monk steals, you know, if a monk engages in sexual intercourse, and if a monk is a liar in terms of his attainments and his knowledge and so on, right? Those are the kind of things that if a monk does, he's absolutely defeated. He's no longer a monk. Even if he continues to wear his robes, he's not a monk. Even if no one finds out that he did these things, he's not a monk. And so it's that kind of thought that he gives rise to and he goes like, yeah, why not? Maybe I should be able to enjoy all these things I might be able to do you know, behind closed doors with a woman. And it's while he's sitting around other monks that he goes, you know, you know, the Buddha teaches these things that, that are uh, obstacles, but, you know, I, I don't think they're genuine obstacles. And the monks turn at Aditha and they're like, did he really just say that? 
And they say, Aditya, you can't say that. You, you, you have to know that that's not the case. If the, Buddha, if the Buddha says something is a genuine obstacle, it's an obstacle. It's an obstacle to becoming liberated, free, an arahant. And he's just like, nah, but I kind of really think that, though, that there are these obstacles that he says, they're not real obstacles. And they're like, wow, man, I can't believe it. And so one of them goes off to the Buddha and says, hey, teacher, you won't believe what Aditya is saying right now. And the Buddha hears him and he goes, okay, well, bring, bring Aditya in front of me. We'll hear it out. And so now the Buddha is asking him himself, like, Aditya, what, what have you been saying to everyone? And Aditya says the same thing. It's like, well, you know, you've been teaching these things as, as obstacles to the, to the goal, but, you know, I don't think they're real genuine obstacles. And the Buddha's like, when have, I, when have I ever taught anything like that? And why would you come to that conclusion based off of what I've taught? Like, essentially, why would you disparage me that way, and why would you paint me to be a, a liar? Because that would have to be the case. If the Buddha says something is a genuine obstacle to the goal, to becoming an arhat, to becoming fully liberated, and he's either lying or wrong, that doesn't make him a very good teacher, right? And so that's the concern. Aditya is essentially telling everyone that, you know, the Buddha doesn't really know what he's talking about or is wrong on this case or something like that. And so, and also, uh, you know, Aditya in this case is, is not being a very good monk. In this case, the monk is working on the goal, working on becoming an arahant, working on being fully liberated. As the commentary pointed out, it is perfectly possible for a layperson to practice and in the course of their practice and development of the path to become a stream enter, to become a once-returner, to become a non-returner. The reason why the commentary doesn't bring up the whole idea of arahantship might be because of two different reasons. One is that over time it's become less and less the case that anyone talks about laypeople becoming arahants. But also because even the examples we have in the suttas tend to point a picture of someone soon after becoming an arahant, becoming a monk. Like, they either become a monk or they die. That's pretty much what happens. So we can come to that conclusion. That if, if anyone of us as a layperson is becoming an arahant, we're likely to take on the robes in some way, become an ascetic in some way, or uh, disappear in some way. But monks, even though that can be the case, in fact, when the Buddha talks about his, his path as being noble and good, he points out that that's the thing that happens, that monks that practice the path as his students gain noble attainments. They become arahants. They become once-returners. They were rather non-returners and once-returners and stream-winners. But the other attainments are not the goal for them. Monks ordain, at least during the time of the Buddha, to get the, the big prize. They're not ordaining and taking on the precepts, all 227 rules. They're not living the lives they live as monks just to become stream winners, just to become once returners, and so on. They're practicing for arahantship, which is why they practice the way they practice. So for Aditya to be having these thoughts, to have his mind lean in that way, to start thinking that, you know, these things that defeat monks really don't defeat them. That is something that is quite disparaging to the Buddha. And quite damaging to his own path. The Buddha himself tells Aditya that like, what you're doing is very dematurious. You're, what you're doing for your practice is not good. You're not going to develop in this way. And so the Buddha uses a term for Aditya. He calls him a worthless man. And so I think that as Westerners we can read something like that and hear the Buddha being pretty harsh with a student of his, calling him worthless. And we can take that on and reflect on ourselves and our own development on the paths, especially for those of us living as lay people. But, I mean, even if there are monastics as well that 
aren't really trying that much on their path, there might be that same concern. It's like, am I worthless? I can see that being the case, you know, even when I was very young and I was studying on my own. I was the kind of person that I was talking about last month where I tended to study on my own. I was kind of nervous about finding community and going and practicing in temples. And so I was the kind of guy that picked up a book and just read passages and sort of came to my own conclusions. And given my own struggles when I was younger with my sense of self-worth and my, my sense of how good of a person I am would have absolutely read something like that and thought, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm no good. I got to, you know, and I would probably have beat myself over the head thinking like what I'm doing is no good. What I'm saying is no good and so on. Now, the thing is, is Aditha in either this encounter with the Buddha or in a similar encounter later on, ends up being suspended for continuing to say these things, to continue to disparage his teacher, to continue to not develop the path, to continue to say these things and practice in a way that isn't befitting of a monk. And so he's suspended, meaning that like, you know, he can come back if he corrects himself, corrects his views, apologizes, makes amends, because that's also part of the monk's path. But he's the first monk, according to the commentaries, that is suspended. And it's also according to the commentaries that he doesn't actually seek to reconcile himself with the Sangha in any way, ends up disrobing. So the, what the Buddha said about Aditha's thoughts contributing to his own demerit kind of works out. He ends up not being a monk, he ends up not really practicing, and what his story is, is after that I, I haven't really seen. It might not be that there's much said beyond that. But when we're talking about obstacles, the Buddha does point out some of the obstacles he views, and the one in particular that Aditha was thinking about, as genuine obstacles. He says, But this monk, Aditha, formerly of the vulture killers, through his own wrong grasp of the Dhamma, has both misrepresented us as well as injuring himself and accumulating much demerit for himself. And that will lead to this worthless man's long-term harm and suffering. For a person to indulge in sensual pleasures without, without sensual passion, without sensual perception, without sensual thinking, that isn't possible. Now the commentaries say that when the Buddha talks about these sensual pleasures, he means precisely sexual intercourse. And we can view it that way. But I think that we can even view it in a larger sense, the way it's read there, sensual pleasures. One of the things that we find in, in practicing the path is that the Buddha is encouraging us, even as lay people, to recognize the drawbacks of trying to gratify our sensual pleasures all the time, or at all. And not to try to find pleasure or happiness in developing the path, right? To see the danger of not developing the path. And so it means that the things that we do to gratify our senses as a run-of-the-mill kind of a person is very much the thing that we can't do without having sensual passion, without having sensual perception, without having sensual thinking. Which is why when last month I cheekily made that comment that like, oh, here's this guy who's worrying that he's having uh, you know, thoughts of lust while he's sleeping with his wife, and I thought, well, like, I, would, I would hope so. It's only because how comical and ridiculous would it be for someone to try to engage in sex and not have any thoughts of sex while they're having it? 
I mean, it's basically at that point being a robot, and I can't imagine that being fun for either party. But it in no way means that it's an encouragement to lay people to engage in those things. It's just it's not the Buddhist perspective to shame lay, lay people for that either. In fact, there's another example where the Buddha talks precisely about what the layperson's protocol is. It's uh, when the Buddha's talking to uh, uh, Dhammika, who was a, a, lay, a lay follower who had a following of his own. He, he comes to the Buddha with, in the suttas, it, it, and we're in this sutta, it says like 500 lay people follow Dhammika and come to talk to the Buddha. And so was it 500 people? Maybe, but it just, 500 tends to be the, the, the sutta's way of saying a lot of people. Right? So a lot of people come with Dhammika, and Dhammika asks, what's the protocol for the monks and the lay people? Lay it out for us, please. And so the Buddha does exactly that. He, he lays out the protocol for monks. He says monks have this duty of going out into the world, getting their alms, thinking the right thoughts as they're getting their alms, going back to the monastery, finding a, a nice secluded place to practice, and do their abiding for the day. And as they're doing their abiding, they're trying to make sure that their mind doesn't reach out to the world. They've secluded the body. They want to make sure that they continue to seclude the mind. So their mind is not reaching out to the world as they practice. And then for lay people, he says a lot of the stuff that we're familiar with. He lays out the five precepts. But he does say, for the third precept, he says to uh, avoid uncelibate behavior as if it were hot embers. Right? So he does say, try to be celibate. But then in the same breath he says, but if you can't, at least don't practice sexual uh, misconduct, right? And he lays it out like that. And then he continues to talk about the upositha, following the eight precepts. And so what that means for a lay person is that you're very much trying to develop in the path. You're being encouraged to develop in the path. Encouraged to hold yourself to the same standards that monks hold themselves to. But then the, in this talk to Dhammika, the Buddha also points out that, well, for lay people, it'd be really hard to do all of the practices that a monk does because you live in the world and you have responsibilities, you have relationships, you know, you have these people you care for. There's another example where he's talking to another layperson and he talks about the relational world that the layperson lives in. The layperson has, has a relationship with their parents, has a relationship with their spouse and children, has a relationship with their friends and teachers, has a relationship with ascetics they might meet along the path, has a relationship with their co-workers and employees. And living in that world, living in the senses, living with those responsibilities, they practice to the best of their ability. They're encouraged to practice to the best of their ability. But, you know, in this case of, of celibacy, if they can't, and that's all the Buddha says on it, if you can't, then avoid sexual misconduct, right? That's the way the Buddha talks about it. But a monk, is hold, held to a higher standard. A monk is expected to be celibate. And if a monk breaks that, they're defeated. And so it is a monk that the Buddha is talking to here in, in the, the snake simile. And so it's once he's addressed Aditha and, and uh, you know, fully let him know the, his wrongs, that Aditha hangs his head in shame. And we don't know what happens to Aditha in the course of this, of this particular discourse, but we know that in the commentaries, he eventually ends up disrobing. But in this sutta, then the Buddha turns to the monks that are there who have witnessed this conversation and talks about two important similes. And I think there's a really important reason that they show up together in this particular sutta. The one is the simile of the snake. The Buddha talks about someone who needs, for whatever reason, to capture a snake. And he says that 
you know, if someone really doesn't think about it very much, they don't know the, the right way to grasp a snake, they might reach for the coils, they might reach for the tail, and in grabbing it, the snake will just turn right around and go ahead and bite that person, right? Either bite them in the hand, bite them in the arm, or their limbs in general, their legs, whatever. Whatever part of them they, they, they can bite. And then the Buddha says, well, someone who's really skillful in capturing a snake will know to find some stick that's forked, pronged in some way, pin the snake down, and then grab with their hand the snake by, by the base of its head. So that, that way the snake's body can move around, but the person is not going to get bitten by the snake. And so in this simile, the Buddha is talking about the unskillful person being the type that tries to grasp the Dharma. They try to understand the Dharma. They try to study it and they try to apply it. And there's some cases where someone really does try to apply it, but they have wrong view. And so their application has mixed result. And then you have the other kind of person that seeks to study and understand the Dhamma, but with really no intention of actually practicing it, taking it on, doing anything with it. It's just nice philosophical thoughts to have. The Buddha re refers to that kind of person as someone who studies the Dhamma to debate the Dhamma, to be an intellectual superior who can argue effectively with others and prove their, themselves right, but not actually practice in any way. The skillful person grasps the snake in the right way and is not harmed by the snake. This is the person who grasps the Dhamma in the right way. They grasp it for the sake of practice and they do so with right view. The understanding that they're developing the Eightfold Path, that they understand the duties within the Four Noble Truths, that they know what it is that they're doing, they recognize that it is a path of action, a path of developing skill. That's the person who's grasped the snake effectively. And it's right after that that he gives the simile that we're almost, I'm sure almost all of us in here are familiar with which is the simile of the raft. The idea that someone's traveling around, they come to a body of water, they realize that the shore that they're on isn't very safe, it's very precarious, it'll be much safer to go to the further shore. And they recognize that there's no bridge to get to the further shore, there's no ferry boat to take them across, they're gonna have to build themselves a raft. And so they build a raft, and they make it out of sticks and twigs, vines, whatever, they get themselves across. And it's once they're on the other side, they think that, well, you know, this raft has been real help, help, like helpful, real handy. Maybe I might need it again. Maybe I'll need it forever. I should throw this thing on my back and carry onward, right? And the Buddha is saying, no. Like, the skillful person will recognize they used the raft. It served its purpose. Now it's time to put the raft down. And so the fact that these two similes exist together in the same sutta show something very important in terms of practicing the Dhamma. Because if we only had one of these similes, we would think that the path is only about grasping, 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 grasping. And if we only had the one simile, the one that we are almost all, all of us familiar with, we would think the path is only about letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And this is so prevalent a thought that I end up seeing it all the time. Uh, you know, I sometimes find myself on Instagram and Facebook. A lot of the time it's to post Dhamma talks or share various things, the ongoings at IBMC. But that means I follow a lot of other Buddhists and a lot of other people interested in Buddhism and they find various things they like to share and they share them. And so I saw this one thing recently where it was uh, a Buddhist teacher saying that the whole path is about letting go, letting go, letting go. There's nothing but letting go in the path. 
And, you know, out of context, who knows if that's the only thing that that teacher meant. But if that is an accurate soundbite, then that person has only been listening to one of the similes. That the path is about letting go, letting go, letting go. But even within the simile of, of the raft, it's not about letting go while you're still on the, the closest shore. It's not about letting go while you're still in the middle of the water. It's about letting go once you've made it to the further shore. But then it also ignores this other part, that there are things that we grasp. So to bring it back to desire, in terms of the, of the Buddhist teachings, sensual desire is always an obstacle. It's one of the things that we try to overcome. Craving and clinging, one of the, one of the, the defining marks of, of craving is sensual desire. Right? We crave after sensual uh, sensuality, we, cra we crave after becoming, we crave after non-becoming. So, of course, that is an obstacle. But we can't beat ourselves up for being where we are on the path. Because I don't think that's what the Buddha meant when talking to lay people either. Right? An important lesson that I've heard from my own teacher many times is the idea that none of us come to the path perfectly. We don't come to the path as our haunts already. You know, we come with whatever it is that we've got in us. We come to a, this path because we're trying to develop. We're trying to become more skillful. We're trying to become better. We're trying to find a lasting happiness. And what that means is that in developing it, we, we need to be honest with ourselves. We can't pretend to be arahants and by pretending to be arahants become one. It's not the way it works. So we recognize where we are. We encourage ourselves to be better, but we don't shame each other for being where we are. Like that Western philosopher I was talking about earlier, you know, trying to find who's responsible and, and who to blame. We're not looking to blame anybody. We take responsibility for ourselves. We recognize that we exist relationally with each other, and so we try to do good to others, and others may do good to us as well, right? Assuming that we are in a good community of like-minded people. But we're not blaming, blaming anyone for where they are in the path. I can only imagine if, if that was the, the Buddha's standpoint as people came to him, really needing him as a teacher and him as a guide. You know, if someone like Angulimala had come to the Buddha and the Buddha's instead of showing him compassion, showing him benevolence, wanting to teach him, was just like, you're worthless, you're awful, you're terrible and you're always going to be that way. It's your nature to be this way. And you know what? You don't need my teachings. You need to be thrown in a cell and forgotten forever. Right? That was not his attitude at all. Right? He recognized that Angulimala had done a lot of harm in his past. But he recognized that Angulimala could make different choices in his present and his future. And so the Buddha put his faith in that part of Angulimala's history, his present and future. The reason why Aditha is someone who's considered worthless is because he's going around and saying that what the Buddha had to teach, what the Buddha had to give as a gift, because the Dhamma is a gift, didn't hold much value or, or importance to him. And he had been given this opportunity to develop in the path as a monk and was not using it effectively, not using it for the goal, 
not using it for dispassion, not using it for release, but instead getting caught up in views, and silly views at that, you know? I, I mean, imagine a monk has the Buddha as a teacher. Imagine! And he's sitting in the forest thinking, mmm, sexy ladies, sexy ladies. Like, that's what he's doing with his time, right? That's a bit sad. But as lay people, we have our code of conduct. We have what we're trying to do. We have how, how we're trying to develop. So, kind of a, a long and, and in-depth talk. Uh, I will say that uh, as we <laughs> enter into the holiday season in the, in the next week or so, this might be a kind of an odd talk to have in the back of your mind. It's like, well, sensuality is a, is a lot of burning coal and embers. So, uh, you know, remember that as you might be receiving and giving gifts and eating good food and hanging out with family. Um, but it's true. Remember that aspect of it. But also remember that there are pleasures to be had amongst family and friends that are a part of your responsibility as a layperson. One of the things that the Buddha says is to protect, to care for your loved ones. Another way of translating that is to cherish your loved ones. And that's in alignment with the Dhamma. So this holiday season, perhaps don't dwell so much on possessions, dwell on various views that you can build yourself up around, your sense of self around. But Cherishing what's in alignment with the Dhamma, cherishing your friends and family, perfectly in, in alignment with the Dhamma, perfectly in alignment with the, the feeling of the season. So with that, I, I will end my talk. Thank you.